I want to pick up on something that was connected, as Phil already alluded to, to a message that I shared a couple of weeks back. Some of uh, you who were here may recall that we had looked at a small passage of Scripture in Mark 6, verses 30 through 32. I actually put them in the handout. I want to refer to them because even though we approached them as something that was self-contained, to really appreciate where I'd like us to go in the minutes that we have left to share together, I would like to revisit that and look at it because it actually has a bearing. And um, part of what I'm wanting us to think about in the time that we have here is what it means to be open to being available to God, to be his hands and his feet, to be, and that's the description we use, but to being open to, the, to being responsive to the needs that are all around us and um, being willing to represent his heart in the circles of our lives. So um, I want us to let's look at Mark 6.30, and I'll read briefly through this, actually rapidly through these two, three verses. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus, and they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place, and I want you to rest for a while. For there were many coming and going. In fact, there were so many coming and going that it says that they did not even have time to eat. And so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And we talked about this decision to get away and have some rest and how important it is at times in our lives to pull back if we're going to actually be able to move forward. We talked about the value of, of resting and being replenished and re, re-engaging things and thinking through things and praying through things. And, and the disciples had just gotten back from an extended time of ministry. Jesus had sent them out two by two. They came back. They gave their report to him. But he could tell when he looked in their eyes. He could tell often in the same way that you and I can look at someone and, and we can tell if they're emotionally exhausted. And there's no question as Jesus peered in the eyes of his disciples who had faithfully done what he had asked that he saw something in them that that concerned him. And he also understood the fact that he was at this point so popular that people were clamoring about him continually. That wherever he went, he was swarmed with people and the multitudes, particularly in Galilee, were all around him. And the disciples had been absorbed into that and so they were constantly dealing with people. In fact, we're given that little glimpse here that they were so uh, engaged in just trying to help take care of Jesus and all the people who were interested in getting next to him and talking to him that they weren't even eating properly. They didn't even have time to eat properly. And and we can conclude also they weren't resting well. And so they were depleted. They needed to get recharged and they needed to to get their batteries up and running again. And Jesus knew that. He understands that we aren't made to go on indefinitely in a crisis mode. Can't do it. It's going to show up some way, some well, in some area of our life. Frequently, it shows up physically. Um, the, he didn't want them to break down, so he said, I want you to come with me. We're all going to get away together. We're going to get some rest together. We're going to go across. They were on one side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember we talked about this a few weeks back. The Sea of Galilee, you can still go there, there today. It's beautiful. Um, it's, it's serene. It's you know, got pastel blue and gray surrounded by hills. It's it's sedate in and of itself, and, and Jesus was on, it's not really a sea, remember we talked about that, it's actually a lake, and you can, you can see pretty far, but across the other side, and Jesus was saying, you know, we're going to get away from the crowds, we're just going to get in a boat, and we're going to go, and we're going to take our time, we're going to go to the other side and find that spot, you know that spot that we like, we're going to go there, and we're going to get alone, and we're going to rest, that's what I want us to do, and they were clearly happy about that. And that would have been a, you know, we, and we talked about that, and we made some applications about our need for rest. And, but one of the things that when you read the passage through that occurs to you and to us as we read it is that they actually never got to their destination. 
because we're told that the crowds of people that have been thronging them and surrounding them had actually figured out where they were going. And if you are um, very motivated, you can actually get around the lake at some times faster than you can cross it in a boat, depending on how the wind is and how much effort you're putting out. Um, and so what we know is that there were a group of people, many of the villages, it says a large multitude, talking about a few thousand, clearly, as we're going to see, more than that even, had spread the word, and many of them had raced around the lake and had beat Jesus and the disciples to the other side by foot. And they, were, they, had, they had assessed and kind of had known where they were heading, and so they were waiting. I could see the disciples as they're in the boat saying, what's that? There's a commotion over there. And then as they looked, yeah, it looks like there's a whole crowd of people. And then it's like, yeah, and they're waiting for us. And, oh, no, Lord. And, and maybe they were thinking that, you know, Jesus is going to get out, and he's going to tell them, you know what, you guys just need to give us some space because we're on a little mini vacation here. <laughs> um, but what ended up happening, and, and it's, it's sort of, to me, it's both amusing and it's a lot like real life. We have our plans but those plans have a way of getting interrupted at times. And a lot of times, those interruptions involve people. And in Jesus' case, he just loved people. And it says that when he got to the shore, you can look at it in verse 33, that when the multitude saw them departing, and many knew, knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities, they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he had come out, got out of the boat, he saw this great multitude of people. This <laughs> huge gathering. And instead of being angry or really telling them, you know, get out of here, he um, says he was moved with compassion. And uh, the eyes of Jesus, those eyes that looked at things differently, and even though I think he was exhausted himself in his natural humanity, there's no question he was always giving and giving and giving. And at this time, people were pulling on him. Everybody wanted a healing. Everybody wanted him to do something. Everybody wanted to hear him. It was constantly being pulled at, and yet we see him, his, his compassion. And it says, you know what compassion is? Because it's a word we, we, we sometimes use it, but I don't think we really fully, well, you know, what does it mean to have compassion? I mean, I think of, obviously in there is something of passion, right? It's to be with passion about something. But it's really, it has to do, I think, a lot of the way I look at it, at least, is it's kind of a mixture term. It mixes the idea of pity and love. And you entangle them together. You mix them together, and what you get is compassion. There's a sense of, of, of feeling something for someone, but with love. It's not purely pity. There's a love that is there intermingled, and it compels action or response. And Jesus saw them, and the metaphor that he uses is they look to him, these multitudes, like uh, sheep who were scattered about, but there was no shepherd. They needed leading and feeding and guiding, and so he, he felt compelled to, to to help. And you know what? It's interesting because the first thing he does is not let's feed them physically. He says, I, he says, I want to teach them. And he taught them and he gave them his good words, we're told. In fact, it says here, it says that when the day was, it says, and Jesus, when he came out, saw the great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, verse 34, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And because of that compassion, he began to teach them many things. So he began to share with them the things of God. He began to talk to them about the heart of the Father. He began to unfold to them the scriptures. He began to give them the words that were such a blessing that many of which we can still hold on to today and live out of. But then we're told in verse 35 that when the day was now far spent, which is the, which is the Bible's way of saying that as, as it got further into the afternoon, 
his disciples came to him, and they said, verse 35, you know, Lord, this is a pretty deserted place, and there aren't any food stands here. Um, they didn't say that, but that's what they meant by it, because he says the hour is late, and I think we need to send them, the people, away now. I think we should end this meeting. I mean, uh, most likely it was in the af- late afternoon. We know at that time of the year where the grass was green, it was most likely spring, and in the spring, it usually got dark around 6 and so this was the early afternoon, maybe mid-afternoon, and the disciples are sensing, you know what, the people are going to get hungry. Why don't we, Lord, just a suggestion, let's call the meeting to a conclusion, and then we can get on doing what we were planning on doing earlier, which was to get away. Remember? Remember the getaway part? <laughs> we were looking forward to that. So this has been great. But let's, let's get them moving. Let's send them away. And Jesus, so they say send them away, and they're not ready for his response because what he says is, no, I don't want to do that. I want to feed them. And they said, well, Lord, and you can see the response. Is, what are you talking about, Lord? We don't, you know how many people we have here? That's what they say. You know, you know how many people there are here? You couldn't feed this group with 200 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. One denarii was a day's wage. What they were saying was, you, you couldn't take a half a year's salary or more and have enough to feed this multitude of people adequately. What are you talking about? Feed them. And notice what Jesus says. It says, he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Lord, come on. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? How much food do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five, <laughs> five loaves and two fish. And now, okay, when we compare the other gospel accounts, especially John, you realize that, okay, you know, I, I remember when I was a boy, I always read the five loaves and two fishes. And I'm thinking, you know, like wonder bread, you know, loaves of bread. I know that I'm thinking sourdough. I'm thinking like a loaf of bread, five loaves of bread, and two fish. And in my mind, I'm thinking big fish, you know. But I want us to erase that for a moment. I want us to think about maybe this, a piece of bread the size of a, of a person's hand in flat, a small piece of bread. Um, we know from John's account that it was barley bread, which is the bread of the poor. We also know who had that bread. It wasn't even Andrew's bread. Andrew had got it from a little boy who offered him his lunch. It was five barley breads, and, and John says very clearly, two little fish. Because they would, typically the poor would use, the barley bread was dry. It was the, it was the worst bread you could get. Um, and they would, they would get little, think, when you think fish, think sardine. Not fish sandwich, right? Sardine. Think sliced up in little pieces to make like a little bit of a relish to add flavor to the otherwise dry and flavorless bread. It wasn't much. And, and, and in fact, I love the way John puts it. He says, then Jesus, look, if you go over to the other side, you can see in John 6, I put that in there. It says, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, so we're told who he said it to, where shall we buy bread and that these people may have food to eat? And, and he, this he said to test him. Interesting, because he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him and said, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. And every one of them if, would even just... Even if we just had that much to, to buy food, it would only be a little for everybody. But then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Lord, there's a little guy here, a lad here, who has five, maybe the boy, I'm assuming his mom made him his lunch, that he said, you can, he maybe heard the conversation, he says, you can have mine. And Andrew takes it and he starts to say, Lord, I got something, five bread. And you almost feel like Andrew is already ashamed by the time he offers it up. It's like, uh, I 
I don't even know why I'm bringing it up. What are they among so many? What is this? It's a joke. Sorry, guys. You, didn't, you can have your lunch back, right? I mean, I don't, it, what good is so, this, such a little for this massive need that we have? What are they among so many? So little. And of course, what follows is one of the most remarkable things ever um, recorded that Jesus has do does. It says in 39, in verse 39 of Mark 6, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties, which, by the way, this may be something that is also worth noting, that any time God does something, in this case, uh, there was going to be a supernatural move of God, and yet it was done in an organized way. I mean, think about it. The Lord says, I want you to do this. I don't want this, this mad rush here. I want us to organize this crowd into groups of 50 and 100. I want them to sit down in rows, and then I want, I'm going to feed them. And so no one at this point has any idea what Jesus is going to do, but it says in verse 41 that when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, the five pieces of bread and the two little fish, he looked up to heaven with these barley loaves, and these two small fish. And he, he looked up into heaven and he blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples and he set them before him. And the two fish he divided among them all. And the implication here is, is notice it says, and so they all ate and were filled. That what Jesus, you know, Jesus does is clearly he begins to just break it and it keeps breaking and breaking and breaking. You know, today with our technology in our sort of modern culture of ours, you know, things like, cloning. We can replicate a lot of stuff. We can do amazing things with DNA. Jesus, if I can put it this way, was way ahead of his time. And he was the master of the sea. And he was basically doing what we are beginning to, to aspire to in our own human technology now in this modern time. But he was able to multiply that. And that's one of those things we either believe it or we don't. I do. I believe that he, he was able to do this. And as it says that, the, that it was such a significant thing. And by the way, each of the, the Gospels mentions this miracle. It's, it's probably the only one that's mentioned in all four. Why? It stood out to them so clearly. They never forgot this day. It wasn't like he did it all the time. This day. And it says here that they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. There was still left over. It was, it was so much that there was even stuff left over. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and children. It was a massive group of people. Now, I said a lot of this to get to this, because I'm going to suggest that in many of our situations here, and we may find ourselves all in different places, but this may not be true of all of us, but I think it's true of many of us. So hear me in the few minutes that we have left. I want to submit some things for us to consider. Firstly, as we look at this passage, I want to suggest that sometimes we will, we will be amazed at what God really wants to do and what he can use, you know, at how he can use our modest gifts and even abilities. Frequently, I think most of us underestimate what God can do in our lives and the difference we could make for him. Because a lot of times we think it's only like the... the the, the great people or, or people who are really enormously gifted. But one of the things that's apparent here is for God to do a miracle, it only takes a little bit. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, it has been said that little is much in the master's hand. And I suspect that many of us underestimate what God can do in and through our lives and what he wants to do. You know, one of the things I, I, I was... Reflecting on, there was a quote that I had put in your handout in which this writer was talking about 
great people, great movements, uh, great individuals and institutions, he said. And he was, he was reflecting on the fact that how people who ultimately do great things or movements that ultimately change the world, when they start out, they actually start out in ways that nobody would have suspected that potential was there. He called it that hour of unsuspected capacity. And then he mentions how he says this, um, it may lie in a manger of a stable in some little Bethlehem, its future glory all undeclared. A lot of times, what the glory that awaits, the accomplishment that awaits, the achievement that awaits, the breakthrough that awaits, is only in its embryonic form and is not appreciated at that time. And, and so he, they were making, he's, making, he's saying that's what Jesus was in a manger. Who would have ever thunk that that little baby in a manger in some stable in the backside of you know, Palestine would have ultimately created something that changes the world as we know it? What God was doing was not discerned. Its glory was yet all undefined. And that hour of um, suspected capacity was there, but it was not yet appreciated. Now, I'm saying that from a larger historical perspective to put, put this on the board. And that is, I think a lot of us have more capacity, it's unsuspected capacity to represent the heart of God than we realize. And part of what I am contending for is that when we have made a decision to follow the Lord and receive him as our savior, and some of us are not, I know, not everybody's there at that point yet, but when we get there, when we really make that decision, when we make that risk, then the Lord is not just interested in us getting to heaven in the next life. He really does care about how we live this life and the way we affect people in his name, on his behalf. In other words, God cares deeply, not just about what we believe, although what we believe is important, but he cares about how we live and how we love and how we're growing in our capacities. He wants to enlarge his, our ability to represent his heart wherever we go, because who can say the miracle of multiplication that he wants to do in and through us? Who can say the power of a little word given at the right time to the right person who was willing to hear it? Who can say the, the prayer that was meant to be prayed with someone? Hey, you know what? I don't know what to say. Can I pray with you? God's blessing over your life. Would you let me do that? Who can say one life that's going to be affected by a choice that we make for God to try to honor him in a very difficult time or by a decision to be integrous in something that honestly part of us didn't want to be have integrity about or to keep our commitment sacrificially when part of us wants to run away. Who can say all the blessing, all the multiplication? But I'm going to take it one step further and, and say God has things he has placed into our lives that he wants to develop. I don't know how long we're going to live. I, none of us do. But while we are living, we are meant to be growing and we're meant to be open to the things that God wants to do through us and, and around us. And, and he's called us to be life givers in his name. Now, we either believe that or we don't. But Jesus said, I would ask you this. Would you let your light so shine before men, before people, that they may see your good works? The quality of our life would be apparent in such a way that people are irresistibly drawn to God, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. But there is something about the choices we make in life and the way we conduct ourselves and the way we, we and I'm not talking about arrogance and self-righteousness and, and I'm not talking about, you know, not being in touch with our own frailties and weaknesses and yes, even our own sinfulness. What I am talking about is being open to, to being life givers in his name, to, to blessing, to contend for growth in our life, to develop the gifts that God's put into us, to say, Lord, how can I use the unique me that you made me to be, to be some type of a difference maker for you in the circles that you've allowed me to walk in with the unique people 
people that I've been able to connect with, with my family, my friends, my coworkers. Lord, how can I represent your heart in some way that brings life in your name? What does it mean to grow inside? What does it mean to give you my personality and let you begin to mold it and make it and shape it? What does it mean to be changed by your word and by your presence? You know, what is, what, Lord, what things are you trying to work into me? What things are you trying to work out of me? What does expansion look like in terms of my character? Well, you know, what, these are part, the growing life is designed to be a blessing. And I think a lot of times we underestimate what God wants to do. We, because we, we say it won't matter anyway. And this leads me to the second thought, which is, and I'm not trying to guilt anybody, but I think a lot of times we use excuses for inaction. We always have them. And I think one of the great excuses is what difference will it make anyway? I mean, come on. And think about Andrew. That's what he says. He goes, you know what? I got five loaves and two, bread, two fish, but, you know, I don't, what are they among so many? I guess it was a bad idea to start with. Sorry about that. I even brought it up. So little. Compared to the vast need, it, we, we oftentimes see the things are such a problem. We go, well, what difference is it going to make anyway? I mean, we despair over the dis- disparity of our resource compared to the need that is there. And so we just quit. We give up. We don't contend. We don't even try. We just, we just let it be. But see, God, I, I'm convinced, and maybe part of it is just to try to challenge some of us to think this a little bit more thoroughly about it, but we will always find a reason to stay disengaged. There will always be justifications for just focusing on ourselves and forgetting everything else that's going on around us. There will always be rationales why it wouldn't make a difference anyway and who will ever notice anyway and why should I even bother to try to be compassionate with the people around me? What, what's the, does it really matter anyway? I'm going to say, yeah, it does. You know, one of the interesting things here, if you look at verse 38, it, it says that he said to them, how many loaves do you have? And, what I, what I, they, and they said, well, Lord, we don't, we don't have anything, Right? And they said, you know, Lord, let's send them away. Jesus says, feed them. They say, with what? He says, well, what do you have? They said, well, we don't know. And you know what he says? Go and check out what you have. And literally he says, this is what I want you to do. Why don't you go and see what we have? And lo and behold, that's when Andrew comes back and says, well, this is what we have. It's not much. How do you know? And how many times... Is there something that God wants to do, but it's only going to happen if someone who loves him is willing to go and see? How many miracles that he may want to do never occur because his people won't go and see? There's something about that. There's something about him. He already knew, you know, he already knew what he was going to do, but he wanted them to go see what was there. And I think there's something... Something for us to consider here, because it's almost like God wants us to participate with him. He, he wants us to be part of the multiplication process. He wants us to remember it's not just about him doing something great. It's about involving us in whatever it is he's trying to achieve. And ultimately, it was about blessing people. And so he's saying, I want you to find out what the resources we have. I'll, I'll do, I'm going to do something. You, they had no idea what he was going to do. None of us would have. We couldn't have envisioned it. Would it ever have been possible to even think it? It could have even occurred. It was the last thing on their mind. When they come back, they came back with a little that they, with Andrew. Thankfully, Andrew was willing to bring something. And out of that something, God did an amazing thing. But it won't happen if we, if we aren't willing to go and see. And there's this idea of action. The last thing I'll say, and this goes all the way back to the beginning. So stay with me on this one. I was thinking about when Jesus 
and the disciples were making their way to the shore. And again, I was reminded that if it was me, and I, I mean, I know not everybody would feel this way, but I, I, I was just thinking about how it is when I'm getting ready to go on a trip, and I'm looking forward to it. And we're all looking forward to it, and we're getting ready. We've got our plans. And all of a sudden, those plans are interrupted. It's hard not to be irritated when people interrupt our plans, especially when we have our agenda set. And one of the things I really was impressed with Jesus by, and I think I'll take it full circle on this, is that Jesus was more motivated by his compassion than his irritation. And I think that has implications for you and me, and I'll just explain why I think this way. It's because I think a lot of times in life we, are, we have the way that we think something should go or how we think people should respond or something that we're planning. And some of us are more like that than others. You know, some of us have very clear ideas of what we're doing, where we're going, what our agenda looks like. We've made our plans. We've got our things set up. We've got this thing. And then, and then someone else either does something and gets in the middle of it and it kind of ruins it. And it's hard not to get irritated with that. In fact, a lot of times some of us, listen, not all of us, but some of us, Part of our growth in the Lord will be to get irritated less over interruptions on our time frames and schedules and agendas because we get too angry. And um, it's because, you know, I've noticed this happens a lot when either we're very much into controlling and guarding and boundaries or as we get older, um, we're not as flexible sometimes. And I want to suggest that the, the Lord really does want to develop compassion in us, patience in us, um, maybe it's okay to be sacrificial at times. To say, Lord, I really, you know what? This is what I wanted to do, but clearly, listen, you want me to talk to this person. Lord, I, I got this, you know, maybe you need to say it this way, but I got these plans. I've got this thing set up, and this is an interruption for me. And if I'm the disciples, I'm saying, send them away. Let's get, we got our own stuff to do. And Lord, you said this was about us. You said we needed rest, and we need it now more than ever. And guess who's getting involved in this whole thing? The disciples. They were the ones passing out the bread. They were the ones helping organize the people. They were the ones sitting there with Jesus. I mean, they were involved. They were part of this. And you can tell they probably were irritated. But you know what? There was a, the compassion, and maybe even Jesus. Let's consider the possibility that even he was looking at the crowds I said, well, I would have preferred to have rested and be with my father, which he will be. He'll get alone, be in prayer. But you know what? The compassion in his heart was stronger than the violation of his agenda. And it moved him to respond. And some of us need to hear this because we are locked in and God's calling us to points of greater compassion and greater love and more patience in our lives and to not be as irritable with the interruptions. And I, I say that as one of us. And the Lord continually challenges us for, to expand our heart. And so, Lord, I, I just, as I've, we've been here, as we've thought of these things, as we've pondered your words, we've looked at this amazing example of, of what you did for us, Lord. I'm as amazed sometimes just by the way in which you love people as, as I am by the miracles that you did. And I know, Lord, that you have things you want to do in us, Lord. And I, and I know that you want to not only do it, I know there are miracles of multiplication you want to work in us. And I know there are miracles of multiplication you want to work through us. 
And help us to not despise small things, small words, small prayers, uh, small acts of, of kindness and sacrifice and patience and forbearance and a choice that we make not to, to get irritated with interruptions. But Lord, remind us that that's part of what it means to be like you and to, to realize that, that sometimes those little things can turn out to be huge things. And over a lifetime, Lord, I, I, I suspect they create blessing all over the place. And life flows in ways we could have never imagined. And who can say if the person we touch ultimately ends up touching a multitude of people? We may never know, even generationally, how much good we will do, how much of a blessing we will be if we'll just allow you to be the Lord of our lives. So I really pray for that. I pray, for, I pray that we would be open. I pray that this last song would just be a full expression of openness, that we would seek to do this. I pray for your blessing over our, our time of giving and those of us who are able and have capacity to give of our tithes and offerings. We do this with a joyful heart. And I ask for your blessing in this closing song as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>